Hello and welcome. My name is Katrina and today I'm interviewing Dr. Dan Whitt, who has just joined the NASA Ames Research Centre. Dan is an oceanographer. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Maybe we could get started by having you introduce yourself and telling us a little bit about your background. Hi Katrina, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for interviewing me. It's been just over two weeks since I've uh, been at NASA Ames, starting a new job in a pandemic is quite an adventure. And so yeah, I'm, I'm an oceanographer in uh, the uh, biospheric sciences branch at Ames. And I work on basically how the ocean circulates, its currents and the turbulence in it, and how that impacts uh, nutrients and marine ecosystems uh, that live in the ocean from the sort of mostly focused on like the smallest little plankton and algae that are in the ocean. But of course, that that impacts the rest of the marine ecosystems all the way up to whales and, and whatnot. So, yeah, that's basically what I do. Cool. Did you always know that you wanted to be an oceanographer? Um, no. Um, I wanted I knew I wanted to be an oceanographer actually only after I was already an oceanographer. So I, I got into, here's it's better, so the way I would phrase it is how did I get into that? And that is basically like, I think sort of at the end of university, I was a little aimless, you know, you kind of trying to figure out what you want to do with your life and, uh, you know, thinking of, thinking about your various options. And I guess I, the point is that, you know, in, in high school and university, I spent, I was doing varsity athletics. I did, I was like the captain of the cross country team at Columbia University. And that's a huge amount of attention and energy. So I wasn't thinking that much about like things like the ocean and, and research and whatnot. But towards the end of my university time, I was like starting to think about what I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, I want to do something that has some sort of positive impact, you know. And I started thinking about like renewable energy and global warming and all these sorts of issues that, and air pollution, things like this. And so I started getting into this space right around then at the end of university. And basically I got an internship working on weather models essentially after after university and then from there i i did a master's program and sort of made friends with a postdoc who was working on some you know esoteric aspect of weather models that i had also been working on and we were probably the only two people at this university was stanford where i did my graduate work we were probably the only two people who knew anything about or cared at all about this topic and somehow i ran into him because he had a poster on the wall in some hallway and then from there, I sort of started getting more and more into this sort of dynamics of how the atmosphere works. And it wasn't a big leap from there to the ocean. Like I had worked on things like, uh, you know, measuring the atmospheric uh, surface winds from things, measurements of the ocean, uh, scatterometers. You can see, learn things about how the, what the wind is doing from the roughness, essentially, and scattering back into space of the ocean. And then, you know, I met this guy basically, and he was, I don't know, I took his class about the ocean circulation. We started talking the first time we met was Leif Thomas at Stanford. We talked for like three hours and I was like, well, you know, I originally thought I wanted to work on the atmosphere and weather, but this guy's pretty cool. He's working on the ocean and the dynamics are similar. And actually like since that time, so I, so I basically decided, yes, I want to do this. I want to work on the ocean circulation for my PhD. And, um, I've gotten more and more into it from that time. I mean, I think that's basically how I got into it. I got into it kind of 
indirectly through the people more so than because I said, you know, I really want to study the ocean. What exactly was it that you ended up researching then? Yeah, so in my PhD, and I guess this is this is an interesting uh, sort of perspective on it. So when I, when I was coming out of university, I thought, oh, I want to do something with some positive impact. You know, I want to like do something. But at that point, once I got into it, my thinking can kind of switched. My thinking basically, you know, you get this kind of insecurity or, you know, there's all these brilliant people around you and they're, you know, have incredible, uh, you know, academic and research records. And you're like, just feel, you know, inferior and basically like, you know, <laughs> what, what, what am I doing here? And so I guess at that point, I think my mentality, I was enjoying, you know, being a student and not, I mean, I wouldn't say that I was like overly stressed. I wasn't stressed or anything, but... I mostly was just focused on getting things done. Just, you know, I, I need to get this PhD done now that I'm in it. Um, I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm working on, I was working on this topic, this internal waves in the ocean, how they interact with currents. Internal waves are basically like surface waves you see on the ocean, except uh, they're kind of just oscillations in the interior in the currents. So the, the, the dense, you know, the density of the ocean varies, and the currents, the, the movement of the currents varies, and so there's kind of these oscillations in the interior, and we call them internal waves because they're just kind of sloshing around. And you can see also they propagate like surface waves will be sloshing in one spot, and then a little while later it'll that kind of pattern will propagate it away, and you can see it somewhere else. So I was working on this topic, and um, the analogy I use in my PhD is if you ever make a, if you very carefully make an Arnold Palmer. Uh, iced tea and lemonade. If you have sugar in the lemonade, sugar makes the water denser. This is dissolved in the water. So you can put lemonade in a glass and iced tea with no sugar on the top. And if you pour it really, really carefully, you can get them to be separate where you have the yellow on, yellow lemonade on the bottom or clearish yellow lemonade if you're making, uh, making it from scratch with actual lemons. And then, uh, you know, the brown tea on the top. And that's stratification. So it's like denser liquid on the bottom and and less dense on the top. And then you can kind of move the glass around and you can kind of see how, you know, the interface will slosh and do this interesting stuff and overturn and, and mix the mix the two, uh, diff, you know, the tea and the lemonade together. And this is what's going on in the ocean interior. It's just like kind of a cool analogy to that. Um, yeah, so that that's what I was working on then. And I guess I didn't get into that thinking that I got into that because I wanted to get into something fundamental, how, how the ocean works, and I wanted to learn about it. And I thought that it made sense at that time to start, do a PhD focusing on something very fundamental. And I think, uh, you know, at the beginning I was motivated by the sort of impact and the application. And I think as time go on, goes on, I'm sort of increasingly going back towards that sort of impact and application topic. But I, and that's a, I mean, it's a fascinating fundamental issue, how the ocean currents behave and actually it matters for quite a lot of things um in sort of this sort of long chain from like sort of the fundamental behavior of the system to like something that matters like predicting you know what's going to happen to el nino in the next few months or, or something like that you know awesome so how did you get from that to your postdoc research then do you want to talk a little bit about what you did next yeah so so that was i would say like that topic was quite directed in the sense that basically essentially from that three-hour conversation we first had leaf and i you know leaf was working on a few things and we talked about you know things things that were interesting to 
explore and open questions and things like this. But, you know, he was working on a few areas and I wasn't going to go work on something totally different. We were, we were going to work on something together that, that was something he was already doing. And then, you know, so, so I did, you know, we did three papers together on these, on, on this topic. And then uh, for my postdoc, it was quite different though. I mean, I wa really wanted to do something that was basically entirely like self-directed. Like I, I said, okay, we're going to write, we're going to get, write a proposal and get some funding to do uh, research on something. And I, there were a couple topics I kind of went after. One was looking at how, they'll tell you the one that didn't work out first. One was looking at how, um, it was kind of taking this internal wave thing, but looking at how, uh, sort of these internal waves responded under hurricanes. So it's focused on hurricanes um, and then the oceanic response to hurricanes. And I guess that just drew my attention because of the sort of high impact nature of hurricanes. And then the other thing that I ended up doing, I, I wrote some proposals to look at how um, basically the behavior of upper ocean currents leads to patches of phytoplankton growth or not in the ocean. So if you look, if you look at satellite imagery of, you know, say, the uh, how, basically how green the ocean is, you can see the kind of chlorophyll in the water. You can see it's all filamented and stirred around, and there's all this interesting, I mean, really beautiful imagery of this stuff. And you know, basically, I was interested in that sort of the motivation. You see all this interesting structure, regions of like little filaments of very high chlorophyll and very low. And why is the ocean behaving like this? And so, I. Uh, wrote a proposal to basically sort of use concepts that I had developed during my PhD to study how the um, sort of marine algae grow and how they're modified by the circulation of these currents and the mixing that goes on in the upper ocean. And so that was sort of actually, I mean, the end of a PhD is a little difficult, especially if you're taking that mindset where you want to do your sort of own project for your postdoc because the funding opportunities are limited. And I think, I don't know how long it was. I mean, I probably had like, I think I probably had six months, you know, left in my PhD and no prospects of anything to do. And I had sent in a few of these <laughs> things and I was kind of like, well, none of these things are going to come through. They're like one out of 10 get supported. And, uh, yeah, I, I got this NSF International Postdoctoral Fellowship, which is uh, quite, um, is a great program. It's, it supports, well, the NSF Postdoctoral Program supports two tracks, uh, at least at the time. One was focused on broadening participation. Um, I mean, of course, NSF always supports basic research, but, you know, the, the sort of things that they, they want with the, they want to do more than just basic research, right? They want to have, uh, you know, have, they have these broader impacts on society. And, and one of the ways that they do that is by trying to broaden the community of people that are participating in STEM, you know, postdoctoral research, whatever. And the other track that they were doing is supporting um, international collaboration. And actually the National Science Foundation funds very little, sends very little money abroad. They really want to put the money into the United States and distribute it and, and you know, support the you know, national economy in a way. And so it was a great opportunity, I think. But, you know, they have this component uh, where, you know, I, I guess by sending people abroad for a period of time, you had to spend, I think it was like two-thirds of the time abroad is sort of a requirement. You could spend some time, you could, you could develop a plan with collaborations at different institutions. I did two institutions. I collaborated with uh, John Taylor, who was at um, 
applied mathematics in at University of Cambridge and, in the UK, and Marina Levy, who was at uh, University of Pierre et Marie Curie in uh, in Paris. And so I would kind of you know go back and forth on the Eurostar, and nice. that was that was a quite nice. Uh, quite nice period of time and I was so I was abroad for the full two years uh, and I know other people do things where they'll be in the U.S. for a few months collaborating with some institution there and then then overseas people go all over the place but that was a quite fun experience being being there awesome was that just by chance and that just happened to be the fellowship that you got you weren't like desperate to do research abroad or was it a bit of both I was quite interested in doing research abroad, I would say. I this was actually the only one. It's not a there's not a lot of options to do things like that because of the way the funding is structured, I would say. I could I think I can depending on the structures. I can apply for things in other, you know, other countries schemes like I could apply for say a UK sponsored fellowship. That's you know, I that's a possibility. But it's very hard to get funding from a U.S. scheme to go study. Um, I know generally my experience in science is that it's difficult to do international collaboration because of the way the funding is structured. You have to like set up partnerships, or they have to. I mean, as a junior person, you don't have any control of this. So you just there have, you have to find some partnership that exists or some scheme that exists uh, to you know kind of make things happen. And I think that's that's helped me a lot because I now collaborate with people like I. I have a colleague in South Africa that I collaborate who I met at, at, uh, in Paris, working with Marina. And, um, you know, where it was traveled all over. Like I did a paper with somebody who was working at the Nansen Center in Norway. And it, that was kind of a quite nice uh, experience that, you know, it's just sort of, um, you know, really lucky to get, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's great that the, we support as a nation these things, I think, even in a very limited capacity. It's just like, it's important to kind of have this international. Uh, and it wasn't something I really thought I wanted per se. Uh, I just knew these people again. And I thought, John, I think I, I forget who I reached out to first. I kind of, I think I emailed them both separately, thought I wanted to work with them and then ended up saying, we should just do this all together or something like that. That's cool. I take it your research has taken quite a big hit then from the coronavirus pandemic. Were you due to be doing a lot of traveling in the last year? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, we can keep in touch via the via the uh, the Skype and and the um, you know Zoom and everything that now exists. Yeah, so I, I don't know that it I, it doesn't really negatively impact the research that badly i think it's just more the personal element you know it's just isolating and hard to keep everything going i think for me i don't know how you know and, and people have various challenges you know it, it varies what the issues are but you know if for because so my research is like quite heavily oriented towards analysis and modeling and interpretation of data so i don't do that much field work Okay. And so, you know, I've done some field work in oceanography going to sea for, for a month or whatever. And that's, I think, you know, for that community of people that relies on doing that six months a year or something like that, this is a much bigger problem. Uh, although, you know, they're managing to keep these things going to a certain extent. You know, I have colleagues that do this to some degree, but it hasn't directly impacted me so badly. Actually doing analysis, modeling and so on, what I do is um, computers are still there. You know, and the global observing systems 
you know, satellite systems, all these things. There's the ones that are there are there, you know, and maybe it impacts missions uh, that are and things that are in development. But um, for me, it hasn't been too um, too much of a negative uh, direct effect on my research. Is that how you get most of your data then from satellite imagery and other data that's still being collected all over this time? Yeah, I, the data that I work with is is yeah, like exactly like that. It's I mean one one thing that I work with is Argo Array. Uh, it's an oceanographic in situ array of profiling robots. Um, there's several thousand of them. So, uh, you know, it's not a satellite, but it's kind of a similar uh, global observing array. Uh, and, you know, they just send the information back and no one needs to go out and get it. And it keeps coming, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's no problem, right? It just comes to me here on my, on my laptop <laughs> at home. That's nice. How did you end up moving to Ames? So, basically, well, there's two, two sides of this. One is that I had a, um, I was in Colorado working at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, um, which is a great place. Uh, and my wife was working here in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I was kind of, that, I was going back and forth on the plane all the time, which is just not a great situation in general. And then we have a little, uh, a little daughter. Um, so I was looking for something where we could kind of all be in the same place and, and applying for things. And I saw this, I just saw an ad come up and I, I applied and, you know, whatever they say, the rest is history or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's sort of, I think, uh, you know, what drew me to Ames, I, I think I do a lot of work with high performance computing and analysis with high performance computing. So Ames has a... Um, in terms of NASA centers, it's a great place to be to do high-performance computing. Uh, there's a NASA Earth Exchange in the um, Ames Earth Sciences Division that does a lot of work with this, focusing on terrestrial biogeochemistry. So, you know, I'll be doing this on the ocean side to look at ocean ecosystems and maybe, you know, land-ocean interactions to some degree. And um, I think so. I think that was an appeal to me. I think the other thing is it feels kind of familiar to NCAR in the sense that they do a lot of airborne observations as well. Um, and so I have some, um, when the first paper I actually did was on aviation emissions and when I was in a master's student before I got into the ocean, I have some interest in, you know, using airborne observations to look at the ocean. Um, but this is something that I haven't really, you know, gotten into, but I think appeals to me about Ames. Cool. Is that one of the things you're most looking forward to then about your research going forward? Yeah, I think there's a unique opportunity to collaborate with people who are doing, you know, developing new sensors and developing new technology to image uh, the ocean, learn about how the ocean's uh, ecosystems, or not to say, you know, the technology allows you to see. Um, and then from seeing, uh, you can learn, right? So there is a, there's an intermediate step. But I think the key is that, and I don't really develop, I don't develop technology to like directly observe things. It's not what I do. It's more analysis and understanding. But I need to be able to see. If I can't see it, and you know, you can't learn. And so there's this kind of key element. I mean, I work on developing modeling and analysis tools that allow you to look or to do analysis in a new way that provides a new look on how things are, or you know, in this kind of model world. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's the same thing with the observations, the opportunity to be able to work with people who are, you know, able to, you know, develop new technology that allows you to see how the ocean looks from that. That's the sort of key raw material to, uh, you know, rewriting the textbook, to learning how the ocean works in a new way that can kind of then allow us to, you know, say, you know, to have that positive impact, to say, you know, to sort of either, either just, I guess, you know, allow society to appreciate what's going on better or just like directly like have some, you know, direct uh, utility benefit like managing marine uh, re um, living marine resources like fisheries or something better um, yeah awesome that's really important research would you say there have been any impacts like that from your work so far maybe some of your models or analysis techniques are they used in other projects yeah I, I don't I'm I don't know that my work directly has made any um you know, has led to a direct change in terms of, say, uh, societal behavior or something like that. That's a quite a long chain, long chain. But sure. I guess I think that, you know, the work that I'm doing, I mean, some of the work that I'm doing does change kind of conceptually how we think about, um, or at least how I think about the ocean behaving. I mean, like, and even, you know, with issues like going back to global warming, I have a recent paper where we looked at how, this is sort of a canonical sort of cliche of how global warming impacts the ocean is that it warms up the upper ocean and that makes the ocean um, warmer at the surface and warmer somewhat at the bottom, but not quite as much warmer. So it's more stratified. So if you just remember back to that analogy of the Arnold Palmer, it's kind of a little harder to mix the stuff, the lemonade into the iced tea. And so as a consequence of that, if you think of the lemonade as the nutrients coming up that allow the algae to grow, it just is the, the cliche is that it should make it a little bit kind of more difficult for uh, marine ecosystems in general. But there are kind of a lot of compensating effects and it's hard to know what's going on. And so this is not an easy problem. I mean, we, we really know in global warming, the ocean surface is going to warm up. But in terms of how it's going to impact marine ecosystems, that's a really hard, hard problem. And there's a lot of regional variability. But some of the work that I've recently been doing does show, I mean, one of the questions we had is, one area where there's a big change is the North Atlantic in models. We, we think there's gonna be a big decline, uh, you know, sort of order 50% in terms of the productivity of the marine, you know, basic wow. marine algae uh, as a consequence of global warming. And one of the, the, part of the reason we think this is gonna happen is because there's just big physical changes there uh, that is also mm -hmm. projected. And so, um, I think what the question that got me is that there's two changes that go on at the same time. And it's hard to say which one is, is impacting the marine ecosystems more. And so one of them is that, like I said, you know, the, the, with the Arnold Palmer analogy, it's getting warmer at the surface there. Actually, it's getting, it should get fresher too. So fresher water coming out on the surface there kind of inhibits that vertical exchange, inhibits the nutrients from coming up, the sugar water coming up um, into the, into the iced tea. But the other thing that's happening is that the ocean circulation is slowing down. We think, or let's just put it this way, models project that there will be a substantial slowdown in the ocean circulation, the marine overturning circulation in North Atlantic, because by the time we get to say 2100, it'll be very obvious. Not very obvious right now, although some people are arguing we can kind of see it now, but subtle. But by 2100, if things keep going like they're going, it's not going to be subtle at all. It'll be a big change. And so the question I had is, well, what, what is, which is it? You know, this circulation change is... is you know, kind of carrying nutrients 
from the tropics up to the high latitudes. And, um, you know, that water sort of slides upwards in the, in the ocean as it comes toward the surface. And eventually, you know, it, it is exposed to the atmosphere there. And then it sinks and kind of comes back down in the deep ocean. And so that's how you have this overturning. And, uh, and I think people say the standard assumption was, well, it's, you know, this, this shoaling of this wintertime mixing and the Arnold Palmer effect is sort of suppressing the exchange locally of nutrients. And this paper shows basically, or we argue, that it's actually what's key is the slowdown of this circulation. And it's the nutrients coming up from the, sub, the tropics that, and that, that slowdown in circulation that's really the dominant driver of the projections of these big uh, ecosystem declines in North Atlantic. I think that's a conceptual shift. Um, I think it's really important that we can kind of communicate well, A, that we understand why, because that the uncertainty in changes in circulation projections versus just like the, the as I'm calling it, the Arnold Palmer effect of the stratification are different. You know, our, maybe it's harder for us to get the circulation right because we have to have this whole synthesis of things going correctly. We have to have the atmospheric model, the ocean model, the whole global ocean circulation correct to get that circulation just right. And then, you know, maybe the, you know, that, maybe that's, you know, should should inform our thinking about you know once we get to something like the IPCC or policy decisions, what, this calibrates your uncertainty. It calibrates you know what is the process driving this? Like how confident are we in it? You know we have, we have some estimate of that just based on a range of uh, various models. But I think you know having that sort of conceptual like sort of uh, process level understanding is useful. That's sort of uh, yeah I don't know that's the closest thing I can give you to something. No one's paying any attention, of course, but you know that's uh they have to decide that it's important I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just such complex systems you can kind of understand why people struggle to get their heads around it, but it's amazing how your your research is kind of bringing all these different things together into a cohesive narrative, I guess. My last question was just, what is the one thing that you wish people knew about your work? I guess I would just step back and say, you know, if I'm talking about people in general, not, not you know, scientists. I mean, scientists, I think, you know, they can appreciate. But just stepping back to people in general and what, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a voyage of discovery, right? We really don't know a lot of things. You know, there's all these textbooks that goes on and on and on. We know a lot of things. There's a lot of things we do know. There's a lot of things we don't know. And um, it, it's, it's an, just, you know, I mean, the whole process of discovering, you know, of being able to separate what we know, what we don't know, and, you know, to, to even take one, you know, the huge mountain of infinite mountain of sand of things we don't know and add it to the tiny little pile, I'd take one grain and move it over there to the things we do know is, is progress. But I mean, you know, and that, that's sort of what it's about. I mean, I, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't know that I've even moved, I would, could give myself one grain of sand, you know, from that mountain of unknown to the, to the, to the pile of known. But, you know, there's been a lot of people working on these issues and there's a lot of things that are known. And I think, um, so maybe it's that, that spirit that you can kind of... Uh, you know, as a, as a community, we can try to move things, you know, to, to understand things, how they behave, how they work. And, and we can, you know, try to learn, I don't know, this, this just tends, sends me towards a Don Rumsfeld quote of the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. But I think that's, the, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a process there that's really interesting of just being able to 
to deal with that and to try to to try to you know in this struggle that it is to 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 go after that to try to create structure and categorize okay we know this we can check you know we actually go and verify um, these things we know we don't know we know how we can go about learning them and then there's this whole mountain of stuff that we don't know um, and and to sort of make progress of shifting things slowly you know and, and to try to do that in a way that has a positive impact so I think it's a it's a it's a process I don't know how to convey that um, but I think that's like kind of the thing to try to appreciate that process of process of discovery and understanding how we turn the sand from from known unknown say you know how we separate between those things well thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me no that was great thank you uh, Katrina that's great